Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Stefano Caponia, Booktopia's non-fiction category manager. I'm delighted to be speaking with Caroline Graham and Kylie Stevenson, two acclaimed journalists, writers, and Walkley award-winning podcast creators of the massively popular Lost in Larimer, which they've now co-written into a new book and are here to talk to us about it today ahead of its release in October. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Kylie. Welcome and thank you for joining us. And where are you both today? Where are you calling in from? So, Caroline? Sure. Um, I'm on the Gold Coast at the moment. Yeah, so and not I'm in lockdown. <laughs> no, we've been so lucky. We've been thinking yes. of you. <laughs> and Kylie, where are you? I'm in Darwin. Okay, so, so we're all spread out. <laughs> yeah, also in the land of free up here, which is very nice. We're very lucky. Yes, well, I'm, I've been working from home for the past, I don't know how long. So, so I think we're all very excited in Sydney. Hopefully one day we'll get out and we'll be able to get out and about. <laughs> um, Keeping okay, our fingers so, crossed. Yes. <laughs> so for people who um, haven't listened to the podcast, um, can you tell us a little bit about the backstory of Patty, Fran, Larimer and the inspiration for the podcast and, and this book? Um, so the podcast was looking at the mysterious disappearance of a man named Paddy Moriarty from the town of Larimer, which is about 500k south of Darwin in the Northern Territory. And I guess the inspiration for the podcast came from the fact that I had already become enamoured with the town. I had been down there a year before he went missing and um, had met a lot of people, including Patty, and became really fascinated with the town's history. All the people there just had really great, interesting stories. Um, and I was sort of pursuing a, a podcast or, or writing about the town itself. And then uh, in December 2017, Patty went missing. So it became a bit more urgent that we had to capture what was there. Um, and Carol came on board to do the podcast. And, um, yeah, in the process of that, we kind of discovered that the town had a lot of uh, a lot of interesting relationships, I suppose you would say. And one of those was with, as you mentioned, uh, Fran Hodgetts, who lived directly across the road from Patty Moriarty, and the two of them hadn't gotten along for a very long time. So that sort of became part of the police investigation, as did a lot of other um, sort of uh, interesting relationships, I guess, that Paddy had with other people in town and people um, further away that he had, you know, known in other parts of his life. Uh, he lived a lot of his life in the Northern Territory. So, um, yeah, there were people scattered all around the place who quite different opinions of, of what kind of person he was. So, Kylie, you're in Darwin. Caroline, you're in the Gold Coast. So had you worked together before? Um, how did it come about that you worked together on the podcast? Yeah, so we actually go back, what is it, over 15 years. So we'd both worked together um, in a newsroom in Mackay, um, the Daily Mercury, um, and had, you know, been friends and, and remained in contact. We were both actually working on fiction projects um, at the time that this story came up um and it's I mean it's really interesting I think Larimer is is a sort of 
it feels in some ways a place that's specific to the territory, but also I grew up in regional Queensland. Um, you know, in terms of the reception to the podcast, almost everyone we've spoken to from anywhere in Australia um, has said to us that they recognised parts of the town as something that, you know, feels like, you know, their uncle or the way they grew up or um, that it triggers these associations and memories. And there's something about the place that feels, I don't know, nostalgic and emblematically Australian that feels familiar for people from all, all sorts of walks of life. So Kylie, you've mentioned um, just earlier, and also in the book, you mentioned that um, your relationship with Larama predated the story of Patty disappearing. So what was it that took you to the town and um, what was your relationship with it? Uh, so the NT Writers' Centre uh, offered up a writing retreat in Larimer, uh, which was due to a man called Andrew McMillan, who was an author. He lived in Darwin for a lot of his life and he did a lot of his writing in Larimer. It sort of just held this special place in his heart. So when Andrew passed away, he left some of his estate to the NT Writers' Centre to establish this writing program. And I was the inaugural recipient of that. I, I have to confess, I was possibly the only one who applied because it was a bit wacky at the time. So I spent two weeks down there in, um, in 2016. Just I was mostly in my room writing, but I'd often wander out into the bar for a drink or, or a chat, you know, just to get get away from the writing sometimes and um, one of the people sitting at the bar was Paddy a lot of the time um, and I got along really well with him and with uh, Barry Sharp who was the publican and Karen and Mark Rayner who were running the pub at the time and I sort of stayed in touch with them after I left so there were certain things that they were interested in in trying to preserve their heritage of the of the pub particularly um, so when I came back to Darwin, I went to the archives and did a bit of archival research for them and stayed loosely in touch. And then um, when Patty went missing, obviously, um, was back in touch with them quite a lot. So at what point did you decide to write this book? So was it always in the plan, like the bigger plan of getting the story of Larimer out to have a podcast and a book and maybe a movie? <laughs> Or was it always the intention to just... <laughs> you make us sound very strategic and we weren't. Um, it, it, it was more... I mean, it's interesting, actually. It was it was not great timing for either of us um, to do the podcast. Um, I was supposed to be finishing my PhD. Kylie had a little baby um, who travelled down with us. Um, I, I think we knew that there was a substantial story there and a story that had kind of deeply crept under our skin. Um, in terms of format, I think the, the first time we went down to kind of do the interviews and research in earnest, um, we weren't entirely sure. We thought maybe it was a podcast, but we didn't have anyone who had, you know, got over the line in terms of commissioning it. Um, and then I guess the decision to write a book came, you know, after, after the podcast and its reception. And I think we just felt like there were so many parts of the story, so many amazing parts of the history of the town, um, such depth, you know, to the case and the research, but also the sort of human in interest aspects of, of the extraordinary people who, who live in the town that we felt like there was still a lot more to say and a lot more questions that we wanted to ask. Yeah, so the podcast actually won the 2018 Walkley Award. Congratulations. Um, so were you surprised um, by the response to the podcast? 
Definitely. Um, neither of us had ever made a podcast before, so it was our, our first foray into that medium. Um, we knew we were coming into it with strength uh, as writers rather than as broadcasters, so there were a lot of hurdles to overcome. Um, but no one could have been more surprised than the two of us on the night of those awards, I don't think. Um, I know that at the end of it, you know, some people in, in Larimer had, had said to us, you know, we know you're going to win, you'll win, and, you know, it's great. And we were sort of saying, oh, yeah, you know, of course, they're just trying to be supportive and whatever. And, and when it actually happened, um, one of the women down there, Karen, we were going down the following day, actually, uh, we were flying back up to Darwin and then driving down to Larimer. And... Um, for, for a wake for Patty, actually, and um, for Barry Sharp having sold the pub. So Karen texted us after the award and said, congratulations, I knew you'd win. Also, can you please bring 100 plastic forks with you? We forgot to get some. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> they keep us very humble, which is good. Like, not be humble, but um, definitely I think, um, yeah, they're great people so, to have in our lives. What, what do you think resonated so much with the, the public that it was so um, popular. I think you touched on it already, but um, do you think it was also the timing that podcasts sort of started really um, taking off a few years ago? Was it just a happy coincidence or what do you think? So Caroline, maybe? Sure. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I think we had a sense from the outset that this was a story that was really hard to let go of. Um, so I think there are lots of elements of the, the narrative that are both haunting, but also, I mean, I think perhaps one of the things about the story, and I know that it's something that we grappled with really carefully in terms of how we did this, um, you have on one hand the extreme tragedy of, of a man who was deeply loved and his dog who was also deeply loved who both disappeared under these really strange circumstances. Um, the fallout of, of that for the other town residents um, you know, is obviously really substantial. And while any missing person obviously leaves a huge hole, I think we could see the effects of that perhaps more clearly because of the size of the town. Um, but I think also the the other side of the other side of the story is is really about the way of life in Larimar. And we were, as well as being concerned with with justice for Patty and with the case really interested in the town and what happens to the town in the wake of of this tragedy um and the the reality of life in in Larimer is that it's sort of absurdity and a sense of tall stories is is really part of the fabric of everyday life there and we in the course of researching this just heard so many extraordinary anecdotes about you know crocodiles with no eyeballs and <laughs> and goannas and um so I don't know, perhaps there's something I think in those two extremes and, yeah. you know, that Australian, you know, identity and sense of humour, um, as well as there being this really, um, you know, important intense mystery at the heart of it. Yeah. So, so for me, the thing that came across in the book um, was this sense of isolation and then the overarching theme of the, the disappearing town. And so for me being, my background is Italian. Um, so I know Europe is struggling with this a lot as well. I know that the Italian government, for example, is paying people to move into these little towns so that they don't become ghost towns. Um, so 
I know that um, in Australia as well, there's a lot of these little towns in the outback that are threatened with disappearing. So what do you think the cause is of that? Is it, um, I know in Italy, it's the fact that young people are moving away. Um, so what do you see as the cause for these towns um, disappearing in, in this way? And what will we lose if they do disappear? Yeah. I suppose in the case of Larimer, it's kind of against all the odds that it's actually limped on as long as it has. Um, You know, originally it was kind of an accidental town that came up because the train line was running through there and then it became the head of the rail when um, 8Ks down the road, Burdham kind of failed in that role. Um, Yeah, I think a lot is lost when these places go and that's what really struck me in that very first time I went there um there's a little museum there and it's just full of all these absurd stories of you know when it became a staging camp in the war of the when it was this transport hub and the trains and the truckies and the wildlife is pretty um eye-opening like every time we went out I was just terrified I was gonna (laughs) have a death out of me or something I went for a run one of the first times I went there and um when I came back I was told that along the railway line there where I've been running is death at a central which was not comforting (laughs) (laughs) and I think yeah it really struck me that if this place disappeared which it was very much a possibility at that time because um Barry Sharp who owned the pub was unwell the pub was for sale no one was buying if he had just walked out on the place. There's not much there for anyone to stop in for. And then everyone who was left is aging. And what would disappear is all that history. And that's what we've really tried to capture in the book, Um, not just through um, archival documents and that kind of research, but also through the people who've lived there for a long time. Yeah, that really struck me, that point of the the pub. If, If no one bought it, the town would disappear. And, mm-hmm. like, for people who live in the city where pubs and cafes and restaurants open and close all the time, especially during COVID at the moment, there's a lot of places have closed, but the cities are still there. It's not like they disappear just because the pub closed down. So it's really fascinating that this um, this pub was, like, the centre of the, the town as well. And so, I guess the pub, if the yes. pub's not just the pub too, it's the post office and it's the restaurant and it's the hotel and it's the source of, you know, other people coming through and sharing stories and gossip and, um, you know, it, it, it's the supermarket too. It's, um, and it's, it's, it's got this amazing character. The pub itself is a character with its, uh, <laughs> I can't believe it, like a pink pub in the, in the outback and full of pink panthers. So what, what was that about? Sorry, you know that history better than me. <laughs> um, look, it just started like a lot of things out there as a joke. So what had happened um, quite a few years ago is that a truck driver had hit a water main. It had leaked. It had caused this huge puddle. Um, it was a bit of an eyesore and no one could really be bothered fixing the puddle. It was really hot and <laughs> it was a lot of work. Um, so instead of fixing it, they just put a stuffed pink panther in a deck chair there with a fishing rod. And they just were like, we'll call it Lake Larimer. Um, and someone else donated a set of um, like, what do you call it? Ice skates? Yeah, um, ice skates. <laughs> and, you know, they were like, if it freezes over in the, the winter, that's what this will be. And it just became this running joke. Um, and then later Barry, when he took over the lease for the pub, um, 
he kind of thought to himself, the pub's a little way off the road. It's really hard to get people to stop here. We need something that's great. I think he had some pink paint around and he decided on a whim to paint it pink. Um, we met one of the guys, Wingnut, who helped him paint it. And it was apparently 50 litres of pink paint and they were just sick of the sight of pink by the end of it. Um, and uh, yeah, people, I think, started dropping off Pink Panther sculptures. There was one that was kind of routinely stolen by the neighbouring pub a couple of hundred k's up the road and it would come back with a ransom note or with its head sawn off or um, they eventually built a couple of sculptures. So there's one in a deck chair and there's another one in a gyrocopter um, and it's just kind of become part of the, the character of the place. Yeah, because if you Google Larimer, a lot of the photos and tags and things that come up are of this pink pub. <laughs> so in the pub there's also, um, and you've also touched on it a bit, a crocodile that has no eyes um, and it's called Ray Charles. Now you said that he purrs. So what the hell does a crocodile purring sound like? And is it purring or is it you're just thinking it's purring and it's actually growling and it's ready to... <laughs> it's not dissimilar to a cat. It's like a. So, okay, we touched a little bit on the the whole thing about um, the outback and um, and the isolation. So I know that there's been a lot of mythical outback murders over the years you know like in my lifetime there was uh, Zaria Chamberlain there's been Peter Falconio um and they've they become these huge media circuses so what do you think is the fascination in Australia with these outback disappearances um, well I think in those circumstances that um you're mentioning with um Azaria Chamberlain and Peter Falconio it's the mystery behind it that sort of drives it. Because if you actually look into missing persons in the Northern Territory, particularly along the Stuart Highway or nearby to the Stuart Highway, there are way more than you would expect um, and a lot that people haven't heard of. Um, what drives it? I think the landscape is so foreign to most Australians who may have experienced it as tourists but not necessarily lived in areas like that. So that kind of adds to it. Um, yeah, what do you think, Carrot? I mean, I think there's sort of this deeply ingrained sense of distrust in that landscape as well. If you even look at the way that we've sort of named places, it's always, you know, Mount Warning. And you can almost kind of feel that palpable sense of, of fear, at least in colonial Australia, for, for the desert landscape. Um, but I guess even with, I mean, the... Falconio case um again it's a circumstantial case where there yeah. isn't a body um and I think there can be maybe a tendency within those cases for speculation or um or, or I guess at the at the very least you know it's almost like in 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 this case at least the landscape had kind of conspired to hide any evidence or any hope of evidence of of what had happened to Paddy, um, and, and I wonder if if that is part of um, that sense of mystery around it as well. Uh, and interestingly for me, um, the, the thing that I 
um, noticed was with a lot of those cases, the women that are associated in the story are the ones that are mistrusted, the ones who are accused and, you know, the, the media latches on as the ones who've done the foul play. So do you think if, Fran, if the neighbour wasn't a Fran and was a Frank, do you think the story would have been a bit different? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think maybe Paddy is slightly different in that way um, because his neighbour isn't the only person who um, he's had conflict with and there are so many other possibilities in that landscape of what might have happened to him. Um, some of them are less likely. I think police um, truly believe that foul play is what has occurred um, given the fact that his dog Kelly is also missing. But I guess there is still that possibility that a sinkhole swallowed a man and his yeah. dog, that, you know, a snake did bite Patty and that something else has happened to the dog and then, you know, the the birds of prey and, and whatever have um, removed all evidence. You just, you just don't know. Um, but, yeah, you're right, like that definitely uh, is how other, other cases are presented. Um, but I don't know if this one quite fits into that category perhaps I don't know um so over the years there's been a lot of true crime podcasts that have cracked cases or reopened cases um so did um Lost in Larimer have that effect at all do you know if it I mean, I think we applied an investigative lens to it. We've been working on this story, I think, for sort of three years now. Um, but in some ways, we might have been reluctant to the true crime genre. Um, certainly one of the questions we'd gone in hoping to find an answer to was what happened to Patty. But I think our scope was always broader than that. We were really interested in what had happened to the town, what will happen next to the town, what does that mean? Um, so in some ways, while this is about a crime, it's also very much about what, what comes next and what is the aftermath and what is the impact for the people who, who remain there as well. So maybe from the outset, sort of our lens on it had always been slightly different to that. Um, and I guess one of the other things we've been keenly aware of, I think there is a sort of tradition in, in true crime, particularly in podcasting, um, for the narrator or the journalist to kind of step in and, and become personally involved in the story and to say what they think happened. Um, and that was something we were always both quite uncomfortable with as well, that we were quite aware that we were, um, that it's not our town, that we are very much you know, outsiders in that story. And although in the course of this, we've spoken to many, many people and, you know, stayed up at night thinking about it for many years, um, I think we always had the sense that our voice wasn't, you know, the most important in answering that question, that the people who are there and living it, um, you know, might have more of a right to their opinions than we did. So I don't know been, if that answers your question, but. <laughs> so it's not like any, it jogged anybody's memories or brought up any clues from people listening to it in any way that you know um, of? Yeah, a little bit. Police did um, say that they did receive calls 
uh, after the podcast aired. And um, certainly there have been things that we've found in the course of our investigation writing the book um, that we've passed on to police that they have then followed up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there certainly have been things that, you know, I guess people might be reluctant to speak to police about but for whatever reason <laughs> would tell us or, or just people that we tracked down that were not um, people that the police would even think to look for that that we sort of came across in some strange way and and that had a theory or an idea that that mm. was maybe plausible that um yeah we were able so to what do you think that is why why did people open up to you so easily I wouldn't say easily <laughs> <laughs> We've spent a lot of time there over the years um, and I think we both just genuinely enjoy getting to know people. So we're not there, you know, hammering hard questions to people. We, we, our way of interviewing people is much more conversational. Um, you know, before our last trip um, down to Larimer last year, Caro baked a heap of shortbread and we took it with us because we felt like we're just turning up all the time and asking these people to tell us things. We, we have to offer something, you know, some compensation. Um, and, you know, we're accepting cups of tea and lamingtons all over the place. We should contribute to that. So, yeah, I think we just approach things probably a bit differently, not just to police but to other journalists too probably, I think. Is that because you're, um, you're writers as rather than approaching it as um investigators or journalists you are approaching it as a writer do you think or yeah potentially I mean we both have a yeah we both have a journalism background as well um although we always had a sense that this was long form um I don't know I don't like there there might be parts of that that are gendered there might be parts of that that are our personalities um and I think also Again, because our scope was wide and we were, I mean, I guess part of it is like if you've got a wide scope, you're not just turning up and saying, what do you think happened? What do you know? But you're asking people about, you know, their whole lives. And so I guess in the course of those extended conversations, other things do tumble out or things that people might not think are kind of centrally important, but would kind of emerge in the course of of some of our other conversations. Um, and maybe part of it too is because we were really applying a sort of human interest lens and we also wanted to get to know in his absence Paddy as a man better as well. Um, we interviewed a lot of people who weren't necessarily relevant to the case but were relevant to him and his background and I think that unearthed perhaps different information on different angles um, so that the, the police might not have had. Sorry, I was just going to say, is the research different to um, the podcast to the the book or was it a, did it flow on from each other in that way? I think the podcast research never quite stopped, but it Mm. heightened (laughs) as soon as we kind of had actively taken on the book as a project. Um, Certainly the scope of it was wider. Um, Part of that was a time consideration. Um, But I mean, I think, I don't know, we haven't really added it up, but we've interviewed well over a hundred people. We've driven all over the territory. Um, People from different eras and different generations. We did a heap of archival um, and historical research. Um, and we were able, I think the book gave us the freedom to pursue things that, you know, weren't just, you know, within this quite tightly contained 
landscape of, you know, the 800 metres end to end of Larimar, but, you know, going back in time and, and going out a bit wider geographically. And the thing that also happens, I think, is that, you know, if you're not someone who lives in a small town or in the outback or very remotely, um, like Carol, Carol and I don't, when you meet people and they tell you these stories, they they feel extraordinary. But to them, because they've always lived in that environment, to anyone else they tell that story to that's in that circle, it's just everyday life. So I think for a lot of people, us turning up and saying, wow, that's really interesting. You worked on a cattle station in the 60s and tell me how what happened. And like they've just probably a lot of people not had an opportunity to tell someone about their lives. Um, and, yeah, we feel really privileged that we've been able to do that. What do you think the biggest misconception is um, of people who live in the city of um, what outback towns are like? I think just the, I, I don't know for me anyway, I mean, like, again, I grew up regionally and sort of would have said I had a fairly good sense of, of what it means to be remote. Um, but there are a couple of occasions, I think, in the book where we encounter that more closely and that idea of being cut off from services, being cut off from phone reception. Um, you kind of have a sense intellectually of what that's like, but the lived experience of it is different. And I think you also see the effect of that on people's character because they are, you know, like there's there's a reason um, so many outback towns kind of had these outlaw reputations and it's because you're a long way from the law. There's a reason there is this sort of level of, bush competence in people um, because you've got to rely on yourself and your neighbours. Um, no one else is coming in a hurry. Um, so at least for me, yeah, um, that might have been my kind of learning about the outback. I don't know. Kylie, what about you? Yeah, I think the same. I think probably there's a sense of that the outback is quite charming and that lifestyle is quite um I don't know, like appealing in certain ways, but the lived experience is very different, particularly if you're in a time of crisis, which you might have read about in the book. It's It becomes um, much less of a charming and exciting place and more of a the potential for things to really go wrong, um, yeah, really comes to the fore. Yeah, so how are they coping with, um, I don't think, they're not in lockdown now obviously but um in the book you mentioned that you do travel back there during last year in um COVID so what's what would be the the difference between people who are in lockdown at the moment like me who hasn't seen anybody in weeks um and someone living in an isolated town during COVID what would the difference be I mean we make the joke in the book but it's not not really a joke. I think one of the things that had sort of fascinated people about the town was this idea that there could be so many factions and conflicts. Um, and then suddenly in those those lockdown experiences, I think people understand a little bit more closely what it's like for your world to shrink um, and to have to really sit with the, the behaviour of other people, whether it's your neighbours, whether it's, you know, people within your own household or family. Um, maybe I think the understanding of how quickly a small tension can inflame into something more substantial um, or more deeply held um, might happen as well. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, actually in, in Larimer, um, sort of the reality of day-to-day -day life hasn't changed dramatically because of COVID. Um, they're very spread out anyway, so social distancing is not a huge issue there, particularly with only 12 or less than 12 people. Um, there, I mean, it's, I mean, I, I, like everywhere, it's things like access to, to healthcare and operations being delayed and those sorts of things. But yeah, I wonder if there's, there's more of an understanding of what, in terms of social isolation, how that can heighten tensions, but also increase bonds. That's right, which is a real theme at the moment for, for people. When you were saying about access to um, communication, um, Right now, if people are at home and they can't communicate with family or friends or um, work colleagues because everything's remote, <laughs> working remote, and suddenly the internet goes down. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What's the Wi-Fi <laughs> yeah. like there? <laughs> yeah. Um, the Wi-Fi at the pub's pretty good, actually, but there's no phone reception there. But actually, as you're talking, the other thing that hadn't occurred to me before, one of the things that police were totally bamboozled by during the investigation was that no one could pin down a timeline. Um, every day in Larimer kind of looks much the same and there's nothing to really it's differentiate COVID. days. It's COVID <laughs> yeah, again, exactly. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, when you were writing the, the book, were you thinking about... Um, the audience differently than when you were writing for the um, the podcast? Maybe not necessarily thinking of the audience differently, but you do write very differently. And we wrote as, as a couple of writing people, uh, we wrote very differently uh, to how we wrote the podcast. The podcast, we were actually in a shared Google document and we wrote every line, line to line together. Um, but we were under such a tight deadline that we didn't have time to muck around and you know, debate things too much if we felt we we're onto something good, we could just do it. But with the book, we tried doing that and it didn't work out at all because we couldn't get into any kind of flow. So we had to develop a different way of writing, um, which yeah, it wasn't necessarily um, to do with the audience. It was more to do with, um, I guess, a longer project and, and, uh, and a bit more time to spend with things and a lot more information to collate as well. So is there a lot more new information for, for people who've listened to the podcast? Can they look forward to a lot of new insights? Absolutely. Um, it's several years more investigation. Um, the inquest is there. There's updates to the police case. Um, we chart Paddy's um, arrival into Australia, his life back in Ireland, and there's several mysteries in sort of both of those elements. Um we meet all sorts of extraordinary people. We went on another three and a half thousand kilometer road trip. Um, it was really important to us, I think. I think it was the central question in kind of deciding to do the book is do we have something new and substantial to say? And also thematically, are we asking different questions and kind of coming um, to different conclusions? So yeah, for us to be worth doing it for ourselves, we we had to know that we were looking at doing a very different thing, but also for for readers as well. And we just had piles of history that we didn't get to include in the podcast. And then in the in the years that we've spent writing the book, we've accumulated way more. I, I went through, like, how many years was it, Karen? 20-something years of um, police diaries from Larimer when it had a police station back when it was sort of this thriving town. Um, 
you know, Caro went through numerous documents. She went down to South Australia to read a book that some guy had written about starting a hospital in Larimer during the war. Um, yeah, there's there's so much in there because the history in Larimer is not boring, just like it's it's people. Everything is fascinating. So what was the most fascinating new discovery that you had without giving any spoilers in the book, giving away any spoilers? I mean, I got consumed by the war history personally. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's like an episode of Monty Python. Um, <laughs> I'm really fascinated by this idea. It was World War II. Um, it was like kind of central to both Australia and America's war effort. There were thousands and thousands of soldiers based down there. And it was both enormously difficult. They were like weaving their own beds out of saplings and eating goannas and baking bread in termite mounds um and so it's one of these things that's like really hard and high stakes but also like the most boring time in everyone's <laughs> life to be stationed there um they were making tennis courts out of like termite mounds and they're using women's weekly for the net and you know it's just unimaginable um so i i fell down that rabbit hole how about you kylie yeah, I think one of my favourite um, discoveries, which wasn't surprising but maybe was surprising in its um, detail, was just the fact that, you know, I think a lot of people might look at a place like Larimer and think that everyone who lives there is eccentric and that's why things fall apart, that's why there are difficult relationships and feuds. But when we looked into the history of it and met people who'd lived there before, they all had the same stories, like the same stuff has just been happening over and over again. And I found that really interesting. You know, we went back as far as I found some documents um, about a family who lived there in the 30s, I think. And there was a guy from a particular family who was known as Shooter because he'd announced his arrival in town by shooting guns into the air. Um, <laughs> and he was often having stouches with his neighbours over you know, cattle duffing and, and things like this. So I think that was a really interesting one for me to realise that this stuff, it's its not necessarily the people who live there, but the environment that sort of cultivates those kind of relationships. Yeah, and a lot of the, well, the, the characters in the, in the town, um, they're all outsiders. So they haven't been, they weren't born in the town. They're all people who kind of arrived so that was fascinating as well, which isn't your typical um, situation with towns, right? Mm. Usually people um, are born there, they grow up there, and then they move away. Whereas here, people arrive and they stay or they arrive, they go away and then they come back. So what do you think that appeal is? Almost everyone said the same thing, like a version of somehow the place gets under your skin. And it's something that was kind of hard for us to understand at the beginning, but it happened to us as well in some ways. Um, but also, I guess one of the things I find really endearing, almost everyone ended up there accidentally. Um, Barry stopped in for a beer, never left. Um, there's a man, another Barry, but he goes by Cookie. He um, came on holiday, never left. Like people... Um, by, by the most part, kind of ended up there by accident and somehow fell in love with it and and stayed. Yeah, and didn't necessarily plan to stay, just thought, I'll hang around for a bit and then suddenly, you know, 20 years have passed and they're still in Larimer. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kylie, you, you recently posted um, that the book has a lot of good Goanna anecdotes. So what's your, what's your favourite? <laughs> 
Caro is the queen of the uh (laughs) but there was a guy um during the war that Caro found in her research that um oh mate was that Clem was that Clem Cody Caro yeah, so he had Elizabeth. There was also a pet goanna um, at the barracks there. Um, my favourite one is um, Carl and Bobby Roth um, have yeah. had quite a, a quite a glamorous life. They were running the museum down in Alice Springs and as part of that where they were, you know, sort of meeting with dignitaries and they'd had dinner with Prince Charles when he'd got sick in Australia. Um, but they lived in what was called, I think, the residence or the residency, um, which had been designed for Prince Charles Um, and I guess Carl had gone away for the weekend he'd caught this goanna a huge goanna like almost Bobby's quite a petite woman and it was about the size of her Um, and he got called out on another job so he just left it in the bathroom and poor Bobby Duke's had got this bathroom. phone call. <laughs> yeah, the Duke's bathroom. This phone call from someone trying to like assess what needed to happen with this goanna. And we're like, where is it? And she was like, it's in the Duke's bathroom. And they were like, well, is it a male goanna or a female goanna? So she goes in and the goanna's just like there pressed up against the mirror, like in this marble bench <laughs> in the Duke's bathroom. Um you know, I think um, even made the book, Cara. I think that was. I that think it did. <laughs> That's how many go and anecdotes we so had. This is, this is an exclusive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exclusive Goanna anecdote for you. <laughs> um, so now, um, will you be working on anything um, about Laramara again? Do you think? Will you be looking at doing a screenplay? Has Hollywood been knocking on your door? Yeah, we did sign a deal um, after the podcast with HBO in the States. Um, That option has lapsed and we're now in conversation again with some other production houses. Um, But as, you know, as as to whether or not we would be, how involved we would be in that process, that's, you know, not part of the discussion yet. So um, I don't know, Caro, what do you think? Are we going to write Larama part two? <laughs> um, I don't know. We've kind of talked around. It's funny, like a lot of the impetus was the book was that we had all this great leftover material. It's probably still the case. Like, I mean, we've just given you an exclusive Goanna anecdote. Um, <laughs> look, I think at least for me, there's probably aspects of the history that it would be maybe nice to document in another format I don't know what that format would look like um or whether that would be some sort of collaboration with a museum or an archive um but yeah that's definitely something yeah it's I don't know it's hard to say but you know we're we're also this deep into it and neither of us can stop thinking and talking about Larimer so um it might be hard to detox on the place and a lot of those um, ideas, I guess, are Larimer adjacent, aren't they? Like we've, we've gone down some weird rabbit holes in this uh, writing process. So there's a lot of um, ideas that we put into a folder that, yeah, we, we might revisit those. Would there be another town that you could go and, and dig into? Potentially, maybe. Have you got a suggestion? <laughs> <laughs> no, not off the top of my head, but I'm sure there's plenty in, in Australia. Yeah, it's and the interesting what you were saying. Yeah. No, go ahead, Carly. I was just going to say the Northern Territory particularly, you know, yeah. I just don't think enough is written about the Northern Territory. Mm. Obviously, when you compare the amount of, you know, writers and journalists that we have here to the sprawling 
sort of landscape and, and population. It's just not possible to cover everything. But every time you go out and talk to someone anywhere in the Northern Territory, they have something interesting to say. So certainly um, places up here I'd be interested in, um, yeah, getting to know better. Maybe it's a bit of a lost around. art, isn't it, the storytelling? So I know my grandmother, who was 108 when she passed away, had some amazing mm. stories. Um, but I think the younger generations, they don't tend to tell stories in the same way. So maybe that's also a bit of a lost art and it's a bit sad that um, it's dying off. So the more we can write about them, the better. Yeah. And maybe that's part of the experience we had. Like everyone we talked to had these great stories, but they've also been honing them like at pub audiences yeah. for 50 or 60 or 70 years. You know, they've worked out, you know, where the beats are and where the lines need to go. Maybe and because how to they stretch don't them. have phone reception there, right? They don't yeah, have totally. They, they can't yeah. tweet about it. They need to tell Live the Live storytelling. Yep. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been fun and fascinating. Um, thank you for everyone who's listening. Um, you can go and grab your copy of Larimer at your local bookstores and online at Booktopia. Thanks for listening and never stop reading. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au.